0: How are you doing? Uh, the Guardian's Martin Kettle is far from impressed with uh, the performance of Suella Breverman, the Home Secretary. She was the uh, woman who resigned over the email that was sent to the wrong recipients, while the Home Secretary under the List Trust Premiership, and then was immediately reappointed when Sunak um, took over, uh, largely because she was thought to be a, a representative of the right of the Tory party and that uh, it was necessary to bring her on board in order to get those who had supported her in the leadership election to support Sunak. She's a hate figure for the left uh, in general and in particular for those who are motivated by concerns regarding uh, human rights Um, because while the the rest of the Tory party um, might have views regarding say the welfare state or the structure of the NHS that the left find um, difficult. Slella Breverman's views regarding immigration and the Human Rights Act are a real red rag to the progressive bull. So she's um, a hate figure, I think. It's not, I, don't, I don't think it overstates it to say she's a hate figure. And she's also a provocateur within the Tory government. Uh, Martin Kettle in The Guardian today has drawn attention to the fact that Our behaviour is really contrary to collective responsibility. Collective responsibility is the doctrine that government ministers don't have personal views. You have a discussion in cabinet or in cabinet committee, and then that forms government policy. And the only way a parliamentary system can operate, it's said, I don't think that's true, but it's said. The only way it can operate is to have all government ministers singing from the same hymn sheet at all times. I think it is true that you can't have Treasury Ministers um, or Government Ministers generally um, commenting on Treasury policy. You can't have dissenting views on economic policy because the consequences in the financial markets are terrible. Uh, This is why uh, Nigel Lawson uh, resigned over Sir Alan Walters, because Walters was Thatcher's economic guru and was saying things that were contrary to government policy. And as Lawson rightly understood, you can't have uh, two voices in economic policy, it makes the financial markets panic and you end up in a situation as we did under uh, Trust and Kwateng when uh, the, the pound starts to collapse because no one's quite sure what the government's intentions are. So, Braverman, as I say, has got her own view on, uh, on immigration and as Home Secretary that's problematic because the only view she can really have is the government's view. But she's made it pretty clear that uh, she thinks the Human Rights Act has to go She's championed that as part of her leadership campaign and she's uh, said and done other things as well that make it clear that she hasn't changed her view. And she represents a a faction of the Tory right that's very difficult for Sunak to control because he needs them. And um, forthcoming election, likely to be a disaster for the Tory party, there's a real danger that should Keir Starmer do what Gordon Brown in his recent briefing paper about reforming Britain hasn't suggested. Starmer hasn't suggested it and Brown hasn't suggested it. But the concern on the right of the Tory party, or the concern of the Tory party generally, is that there might be electoral reform, Um, probably some sort of system of proportional representation that retained party control over the candidates but gave the parties representation in the parliament in proportion to their vote share. There are many many different systems of election some of which ensure that the mp is popular some of which ensure that the parties are represented in proportion to the share of the vote and these are very different things the single transferable vote ensures that the parties are um, broadly represented in terms of the share of the vote but it also ensures that the representatives are under some individual pressure to be chosen even against people from their own party and that, of course, is exactly why the political parties don't like it, because they like being able to parachute people into safe seats. So the Tory party is terrified about the forthcoming uh, election and uh, the likely consequences of a defeat, um, which will either be a period in the wilderness, uh, albeit not faced with the nightmare of electoral reform, which would involve losing all those safe seats in the southeast, uh, where they can parachute almost anybody in and uh, and they'll win. Uh, but, the, but the right of the Tory party could easily peel off and become uh, part of Reform UK. And Braverman and the people she represents are exactly the cohort that, uh, that could move. So when she advocates withdrawal from the, the European Convention of Human Rights, uh, as it's codified in our law as the Human Rights Act, she's saying something which is contrary to government policy, but she's saying something which chimes with a large slice of the Tory uh, right both in the Parliamentary Party and in the wider country. And uh, this is a huge problem for Sunak. Um, She went ahead as Home Secretary and endorsed a a Nick Timothy uh, report for the Centre for Policy Studies. He was one of the people that uh, um, Theresa May had to lose um, on condition of getting the support of the Tory party because he and the female Fiona, hell, I think... But there was two advisers that she'd kept since uh, the Home Office and they were widely disliked in the Tory party and she had to ditch them in order to retain the support of the party. But Timothy re-emerged as a, an author of this report suggesting that if necessary we should leave the uh, Human Rights Act or di- the Convention, ditch the Human Rights Act and leave the Convention of Human Rights if necessary in order to control uh, our borders and end the uh, judicial opposition to the repatriation of people that are coming into the country through these small boats crossing the Channel. So Braverman went ahead and endorsed that report as Home Secretary, which she really didn't need to, and it's quite a provocative thing to do. The withdrawal from the HRA or the ECHR wasn't in the 2019 manifesto, which Sunak says the party is still bound by, uh, and it wasn't part of the review um, into uh, the operation of the HRA that uh, the Gross undertook under the Johnson Premiership. So it's quite provocative. And uh, Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, who's still championing his uh, British Bill of Rights as Justice Secretary, doesn't advocate withdrawal from the ECHR. So in some ways the the government is is split as Kettle rightly says, Rab's plan is a complete mess and it's moribund. It's it's uh, at the moment parked, it's not in Parliament, it's not been considered, it's not had a second reading. And there's a reason for that I'll come to later on. But uh, f- whatever else I'll say right now, whatever else people say about Braverman's uh, view, it has clarity in a way that Rab's doesn't. But there is within government a battle between Rab and Braverman. Rab representing the kind of Tory center that thinks it has to be seen to do something even if it doesn't do something and braverman in intent and doing the thing which will actually work even if it's hugely controversial and causes massive blowback because what she wants to do of course is get rid of the hra um, and then start these fast-track deportations to rwanda or elsewhere um, which currently have been stymied by the courts now sunak has already had to uh cave into his party He leads the party, but he doesn't control it. So when it comes to things like housing or onshore wind, he's had to back down. And the reason that he has to back down on those kinds of issues is precisely because these are the issues that the backbench MPs who have got to that stage where they no longer care about becoming ministers, they're worried about remaining MPs. There comes a tipping point in a parliament when people anticipate uh, losing, they anticipate defeat for the government in the forthcoming election, and therefore the Prime Minister won't be able to gift you a ministerial seat, uh, because he won't be Prime Minister anymore. So there comes a point when the MPs start worrying about becoming Ministers, and they start worrying about re- remaining MPs, and we've reached that point. So Sunak is facing uh, defeat, uh, he's had to back down on uh, housing and onshore wind, because these are exactly the kind of NIMBY issues that are worth, you know, a 1,500, even more votes in Tory constituencies. Uh, These are exactly the issues that animate the uh, Tory membership, the the people who turn up at Constituency Association meetings. So Sunak's in a very weak position, and he can't really discipline his Home Secretary, despite the fact that she's speaking against government policy, uh, or is coming so close to it as to make no difference. Now, of course, if Braverman actually resigned, she would become a kind of prince or, or princess over the water for the Tory right. So Sunak would be in a very difficult position if she did that, Um, so that's probably why he doesn't um, try to discipline or sack her. She might be looking for the opportunity to walk, because again, with the clock running down to the election, it's likely that following a defeat there'll be a new Tory leader, and uh, Braverman might see herself as a possible new Tory leader following that defeat. So... Sunak, again, is in a very difficult position because he can't actually control her without risking um, her walking. She might actually contrive, as I think she might have done under trust, she might contrive a set of circumstances where she can resign on some supposed point of principle, but in actual fact, uh, be setting herself up for a forthcoming leadership election. If, on the other hand, she stays in the government and wins, then she makes Rab's position very difficult because as Justice Secretary, he's piloting this supposed British Bill of Rights. Um, which is the alternative to her uh, more uh, hard-faced view. So she's a, she's a troublesome character in the government and she was appointed precisely because Sunak's position is weak and she knows that and he knows that. Each knows that the other knows that and the wider parliamentary party knows that. She heads a faction that has to be appeased and it's exactly why she behaves as she does. She knows that she's not subject to sanction because Sunak isn't strong enough to sanction anybody who represents a cohort that has to be kept on side in the last year and a half of the of the government. Other things that Sunak hasn't done that he probably should have done and are probably indicative of his uh, weakness are uh, he's, he hasn't yet brought in a new ministerial code and of course the ministerial code was a massive issue under Johnson because Johnson, um, but a large part of his downfall was um, making use of his position as the arbiter of the ministerial code so in the final analysis, if someone was said to have, uh, have broken the code, the Prime Minister could decide whether to do anything about it or not. And uh, and the, the, the failure of Johnson to recognise that that's a power that has to be used judiciously, and that he can't be uh, seen to be just simply um, making rules for friends. Um, Sunak hasn't brought in a new code, which is a problem. He hasn't appointed a new ethics advisor, which is a further problem. And as he head into the election... And the PPE inquiry, which of course is blown up right now over uh, Baroness Moon, um, who's just incidentally ex-husband lives about two hundred fifty yards away from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, I spoke to him during the uh, during the local election campaign. Nice guy, actually. The um, so the Baroness Moon story is all over the papers, and uh, the uh, honours list that Johnson and Truss have put forward again seem to be rewarding cronies. Um, is all over the papers as well, and it's setting up a, a situation where there's nothing but sleaze and bad news heading into the the pre-election period, and it's making it awfully easy for Starmer to, given that he's um, stood up to the anti-Semites in the Labour Party, and I think Corbyn has been deselected, and uh, the uh, the left of the Labour Party is very angry with Starmer, which is something that he probably isn't unhappy about. But they're making it very easy for Starmer to look like the candidate of uh, the sensible centre and the uh, and the rigorous um, moralistic um, proper um, politician with a sensible haircut and a suit um, and a, a due regard to the proprieties. Um, as the Tory Party heads into this election, it reminds me a little bit of nineteen ninety seven, the the economic competence of Ken Clark and the good economy leading into nineteen ninety seven didn't do them any good, because there was this whiff of sleaze and division, and, uh, and that killed them. Now, Kettle, uh, I think wrongly, which I'll come to in a minute, but Kettle thinks that uh, at the heart of the Tory party's problems is English exceptionalism, and the Human Rights Act issue is typical of it, but also provokes it as well. So it's, it's a, a stimulus to English exceptionalism, and it's an example of English exceptionalism. This idea that Britain uniquely is victimised by this Strasbourg court uh, and by the judges that are empowered in the UK by the judgments of that Strasbourg court and the, and the broad uh, judicial approach that it has licensed. Um, Britain, according to Kettle, in the eyes of the Tory uh, right, is seen to be this great power, this singular nation, The shining city on a hill, I think, as uh, Ronald Reagan talked about the United States. And English exceptionalism has, he thinks, been at the heart of a lot of our problems for the last uh, however many 10, 12 years. And it results in an explosive intolerance of convention and conventional wisdom and uh, an impatient um, contrariness. So, conventional wisdom tells you that remaining in the European Union is absolutely necessary for uh, a relatively small. Um, economy. I was in Thailand recently, not for very long. Um, turns out my insomnia problem isn't fixed in the way that I thought it was. But um, the I was speaking to various Europeans and uh, they all were amazed that we thought we could leave the European Union because they all took the conventional view which is that you must be a member of the European Union as a relatively you know, small economy um, in global terms. Um, and it was utterly completely incomprehensible to them as to why we would leave. I explained, uh, in my view, why we left and exactly the issues caused by everyone in Europe's second language being English and the uh, the, the British in work welfare system and broader system of public provision. And that changed their view. Um, but uh, they, could, they could see why we left, even if they just still didn't think that we should have done. But the Tory right sees the the supranational, the the bigger-than-nation, the bigger-than-nation-state political arena as illegitimate. The only legitimate arena is the nation-state, which is why they're hostile to both the European Union and to uh, devolution and even more so Scottish independence. Uh, Kettle thinks that this is ironic given that they've reduced the resources of the state to act internally. So according to people like him, the the Tory government or coalition, then Tory government of the last 12 years, has reduced spending um, on state resources, the civil service, local authorities, uh, and they've made it more difficult for the state to act within the UK. So they think that the only legitimate political arena is the UK, but at the same time they make it difficult for themselves to act within the UK. He also thinks that they're becoming tolerant of the very idea of the rule of law. Uh, Unlike Margaret Thatcher, the great conservative icon of the last 40-50 years, um, unlike Thatcher, uh, who was very strongly uh, in favour of the rule of law, at least as she defined it, the Tory party has become intolerant of the rule of law. And Kettle quotes former Attorney General Dominic Grieve, who, as one of the Remainers, was persecuted um, after Johnson won and I think uh, was deselected. This might have stood as an independent, but I don't think he was re-elected. So the former Attorney General, Dominic Grieve, um, says that the the government seems possessed of the idea that um, if they have a parliamentary majority, they don't need anything else, that legal limits then don't apply, and they can do as they will, and that this is a whole new mindset in government, because governments previously have recognised that uh, you have to act within the law, and that defeats in the courts are important and indicate that you've done something wrong. So, Grieve thinks that the uh, the government has become um, intolerant of the rule of law itself. They think that uh, a mandate and a majority is enough. So, Braverman, as I say, represents precisely that um, wider tendency in the Tory party. She's the extreme um, cutting edge of that tendency in the Tory party to see the judges as a problem and the law as a problem. And uh, Britannia being rechained, I suppose, rather than unchained, um, that having left the European Union, we're still not in a position to actually run our own country, precisely because an unholy coalition of judges and human rights lawyers are still making use of supranational... um, uh, prohibitions on on conduct uh, still making use of resources that shouldn't be available to them because the nation state is complete and contained within itself and what a government uh, ordains for a country should operate within that country. And it shouldn't be the case that people within that country are able to make use of devices from abroad um, in order to act as an enemy within. I'm not saying that's what is happening, but I'm saying that's the the Braverman view and the uh, motivation for Rab's um, weak Bill of Rights, his um, kind of Heath Robinson attempt to address the problem. You know, Because Rab wants to keep the, the, the Human Rights Act and the Convention of Human Rights and at the same time address the problems caused by that with some additional British Bill of Rights, which I, I'll come to in a second, I don't think that kind of additive approach is going to help but uh, the same motivation underpins um, Braverman's approach, which is there is no solution to this other than that we leave. There is no imaginable fix uh, to this. The trouble is it isn't government policy, and she's championing that from within government, which is a major issue and likely to become more of an issue as we head towards the election, because, of course, the government will have to have a policy on the HRE and... Uh, and also Rab's Bill of Rights, that will have to be the case between now and the election. They'll have to take a position. And Labour, of course, will be strongly in favour of remaining uh, uh, in the Council of Europe and accepting the Human Rights Act that Blair, after all, brought in, the Blair government brought in. So it's, it's setting the Tory party up for a difficult pre-election period. John Curtis, the sophologist, political scientist, um, said that the fundamental list of 1997 was that divided parties can't get elected. You can't win an election if the public think you're divided internally because they think if you can't agree one with the other, how can you possibly be, be in the right? You know, if um, like police witnesses, as I always say, like police witnesses in a, in a court, if the police witnesses can't agree one with the other, you might not know who's mistaken or who's lying, but you know that somebody is. Somebody's either mistaken or lying because they can't agree one with the other. And that seems to be the kind of view the public take of divided parties. They think that they can't possibly be right because they're not internally uh, capable of establishing a single position. And if you can't do that, then you can't possibly be right. So before the the election, it's likely that the Tory party will be seen to be divided on, on this and probably a number of other issues. To some extent, Braverman's problem is the problem of British politics. Generally, we've got parliamentary system. Um, the trouble is that it hasn't changed in its fundamental structure since, you know, whenever 200 years or more. Um, but we've had the emergence of what an academic called Foley called the uh, British presidency, or at the very least, prime ministerial government. The, the problem can be summed up in one sentence, which is the prime minister has spoken. Tony Blair, bounced Gordon Brown into spending a lot of money on the NHS by simply going on television and saying that that's what they were going to do. And once the Prime Minister had spoken, it was impossible for anybody in Cabinet, including the Chancellor, to contradict him. Because not only was the government um, obliged to seem united, but people think they're voting for the Prime Minister when they vote in the local election for an MP an MP to be elected on the basis that they've got more votes than any other single candidate but not necessarily half the votes or any other particular number so we've got a very odd political system MPs never used to be paid and therefore they could afford to walk away from the job and they could afford to upset um prime ministers because they weren't actually they had to essentially be independently wealthy in order to become MPs or or be in somebody's pocket I suppose. But, um, but our political system is an odd one. We don't have an American-style separation of powers. We don't have an, a separately elected uh, president. So the Prime Minister is Prime Minister because they head uh, the largest party in Parliament. They've got the confidence of the, of the Parliament. But uh, the public, when they vote, um, think they're voting for Boris Johnson um, or whoever. You know, they, they They think they're voting for a Prime Minister. They don't really... Generally, understand who the local candidate is. They couldn't name them if you asked. Very few MPs have got much in the way of a local support. Certainly, they would they would make the difference in an election. If you look at bad years like 1997, the swing tends to be across the board. So we've got us in a position where we have a parliamentary system which is predicated in the idea that MPs are individual figures of standing, and will have to be persuaded by the Prime Minister uh, that a policy is a sound one and they'll be able to speak their mind in Parliament and uh, the the policy will be modified on the basis of parliamentary opposition until eventually something approaching a broad consensus is reached. And uh, cabinet ministers, although bound by collective responsibility, are again supposed to fully speak their minds and be major figures in their own right. The Labour Party in the past has had shadow cabinet elections, which gave members of the cabinet uh, status because they'd been elected as members of the shadow cabinet and the first cabinet had to be composed of those who'd been elected in shadow cabinet elections. So various things have been done to try and actually give cabinet members and MPs standing such that they can actually have their own individual view. But running against that is the doctrine of the mandate and the idea that the party puts forward a manifesto and the public vote on the basis of that manifesto and they vote for a leader. And the leader's job is to implement that manifesto. So we end up in this situation where, um, if, a, if a leader takes a view, it can be very, very difficult for anybody else in the party to have another view. And that, of course, can can lead a party into a complete disaster. Um, like, for example, with uh, Gordon Brown 1997, 2000, uh, 2000 uh, sorry, 2010. Uh, what am I saying? Uh, 2007, 2010. So the, the leader, as I say, has become this leviathan, this dominant figure um, in the in the party, and uh, nobody else can can really have a say, or rather if they do begin to have a say, it's, it's held to be the case that the party is falling apart and it's unelectable. Cabinet divisions exist. Of course, cabinet divisions should exist. Cabinet divisions are entirely necessary if we're going to have a situation where the political parties are not going to be American-style parties with primary elections. If you've got an American Republican or Democrat party and you have to win a primary election to be the Republican or Democrat candidate, then what a Republican or Democrat is varies across the country as it should. And therefore what you have is a Republican party, which is broadly more pro-business and suspicious of welfare than a Democrat party, which is more hostile to business and more indulgent of welfare. And within that, there's massive uh, diversity. The trouble in Britain is that everybody has to be absolutely united behind uh, whatever the policy is and whatever the leader has said. And that creates a very unhealthy dynamic because it means that um, everything festers in the dark. Now, Braverman is a problem because she's no longer um, hiding in the dark. She's uh, become a a public uh, problem. Uh, She's ventilating um, an attitude within the Tory party, which is widely held, and it isn't party policy, uh, at least insofar as Sunak's Um, declared policy uh, is party policy. But it is the view of the party membership in large part. Uh, The reason why Reform UK is attracting huge numbers of new members. I've paid 25 pound Reform UK. I didn't know at the time that that entailed um, I would become a member, but I got my membership certificate um, through email. So it seems I am a member. But uh, a lot of people in the center right are completely utterly frustrated um, by the Tory party because the Tory party doesn't seem to articulate uh, a centre-right position on all the major issues. It has become um, not all things to all people, but nothing to anybody. So we've got us in a situation in this country where a 19th century or earlier um, view of party politics has been transformed into a 21st century um, prime ministerial or or quasi-presidential government. And when that no longer, holds when it becomes difficult to keep that show on the road after 2010 for example with the coalition government you have all kinds of issues regarding the liberal democrats having a uh, an overly great influence uh, on cameron relative to their numbers and precisely because cameron was determined to remain in office as prime minister he was more concerned with being in office as prime minister than with what he was actually going to be able to do as prime minister i personally think the coalition went reasonably okay but nevertheless Um, When you've got this notion that um, the mandate is everything and that the Prime Minister is the the country's leader, as if the country was the kind of thing that required leadership, as if we were a ship of state that had to have a captain and a single voice, as if it's impossible to imagine a more pluralistic politics. If you have that view um, and then the real world um, hoves into view and uh, a party is genuinely split, on major issues like, for example, COVID or welfare or immigration or the Human Rights Act, then you get these terrible tensions, internal tensions, which will bust us asunder given the right circumstances. And Brannerman um, is perhaps behaving in a way which a lot of um, traditional Tories would regard as behaving badly, undermining the leader, speaking against party policy, remaining a member of the cabinet at the same time, not articulating the cabinet's position. Well, all of that might be true. But we've got us into a a very unhealthy dynamic um, because we're not prepared to think fundamentally about what our parliament is for and how a government could be formed and why it might be better to have more voices and more openness regarding policy in the parliament and then a policy that um, people continue to speak against but can recognise it's legitimate because they've had every chance to contribute. Um, At the moment, what we've got is... uh, a necessity to remain absolutely united um, because otherwise the press will continue to report cabinet divisions and divisions over Europe so that the the press take great delight in, in, in demonstrating governmental disunity when in actual fact governmental disunity and parliamentary disunity should be there all the time for the simple reason that people with brains don't agree they agree to our policy but well, that doesn't mean they've changed the original view They agree to an overview. They have an argument, a discourse, and then they they reach a broad view. That doesn't mean they have to abandon uh, their previous view. It means that they recognize that the other person has got a view as well, and an accommodation will have to be made. But that is no longer possible in this country. And Braverman is um, speaking um, against government policy, and it's it's held to be the great heresy. But it's the great heresy precisely because we've allowed ourselves to um, adopt ideas that are quite damaging. Um, we, we end up in a situation where, I think Claire Short said, um, no it wasn't, it was Chris Mullen. Chris Mullen, who was a junior minister in the Foreign Office, I think at the time, Chris Mullen said there was one MP in the whole of Parliament that he knew who was in favor of the Iraq War, and it was Tony Blair. He didn't know anyone else who was in favor. But of course, you know, once the leader has spoken, then uh, the, the tanks roll. As I've said a number of times before the name of something doesn't tell you what it is. So and George Orwell of course um, made a, a literary career out of pointing this out. The fact that something is called the Human Rights Act doesn't mean that it somehow defends rights and, and that you'd be a, a rogue to be against it. Um, the Human Rights Act um, doesn't do what it says on the tin because what the Human Rights Act does is it represents a, a continental view of the state and the individual. That has been no part of the British view because in Britain the law doesn't um, prescribe, it doesn't tell you what you can do, it proscribes, it tells you what you can't do and you can do everything which isn't banned. So we start with the assumption that everything is allowed and then we ban some things. As John Stuart Mill said, um, the only bans that are defensible are ones that increase total liberty So the reason why you have a prohibition and restrict someone's liberty is precisely to increase the liberty of others. The reason why you don't allow um, rifles to be fired in a public park is because it is a greater infringement on the rights of others to peacefully use the public park than it is an inhibition on the right of people to fire rifles. It's unfortunate that people can't fire rifles or ride quad bikes in public parks. Um, So it is genuinely to be regretted that they are to be told that they can't fire rifles or ride quad bikes. But that's because more people benefit from the prohibition on rifle firing and quad bike riding. um, And therefore, that's the rule. So all restrictions of liberty are for the purpose of creating greater liberty. And that's our assumption. Our assumption is you prescribe, you ban things, but you don't tell people what they can do. The trouble with the Human Rights Act is it tells people what they're entitled to in terms of supposedly specific rights. But the rights aren't specific because the right to a fair trial is in no way specific. As soon as you lay down a right to a fair trial, it's a right to um, bear arms. The Second Amendment of the US Constitution says that uh, you have a right to bear arms, but that isn't really a right because it's it's what the Supreme Court says it is. So all of these um, specific rights are an actual fact, um, powers, they're powers of whoever, powers for whoever, gets to say what the right is. So the Human Rights Act isn't actually a a set of rights. It's a set of powers. It's a description of what courts can use uh, in order to decide cases. Now, the interpretative burden on the Human Rights Act or or, on the courts, supposedly, is that um, black letter law, straightforward statute or well-established black letter law um, is our law. If there's ambiguity um, or if there's a possibility of reading the law. Now, this this is this is a very important point. Um, it was always the case that the Human Rights Act was there to resolve ambiguity. So if the law was ambiguous, then you resolve it in the direction which best maintains the right to, for example, a family life or a fair trial. When the Human Rights Act came in uh, the interpretative burden was held to have changed. Most lawyers, most academic lawyers say it's uh, changed. I don't think it has because what the, the interpretative burden now is that as far as possible you should read the legislation to be consistent with uh, the kind of um, rights that are um, maintained across Europe as a consequence of the Human Rights Act. So there's lots and lots of case law from other countries that tells you what the right to a fair trial is. It doesn't have to be, for example, a jury trial. So there's lots of case law. So now you should interpret British law um, as far as possible to be consistent with the Human Rights Act. I don't think that changes anything because unless there's ambiguity, it isn't possible to interpret it as being um, consistent with the Human Rights Act. So nothing has changed, it seems to have changed, the difference between resolve ambiguity by reference to the human rights act looks and sounds different from as far as possible interpret it as um, consistent with the human rights act but if it isn't ambiguous it's not possible to change your interpretation there has to be ambiguity before the question of possibility arises so the human rights act um doesn't actually do what it says in the 10 conceptually Because what it really is, is a statement of hooks on which judgments can be hung. And insofar as the courts are entitled to begin that process of hanging a judgment on a hook, um, it's only insofar as they're resolving an ambiguity um, or or otherwise reconciling black letter law. So people people are in favour of the Human Rights Act because they think, how could you possibly be against rights? But there's no such thing as a statement of what your rights are unless there's a court that says what those rights amount to. And therefore the Human Rights Act isn't actually a statement of rights. It's a statement of um, principles that can be used by courts to decide cases. And that's a very different thing. And it's all predicated on a different view of what the relationship between the state and the individual is. In Britain, as I say, we take the view that the individual doesn't have to carry an identity card, for example. That's a continental idea. The idea that you have to actually prove to the authorities who you are uh, or, or why you're about your business is completely alien to us. Um, we think that we have right to go about our business without interference, which is exactly why, of course, illegal immigrants like to come here because it's one of the things that's much less likely to happen. The authorities won't ask for your uh, identity. Of course, drivers don't even have to carry their uh, driving license, which a lot of people find remarkable. They just have to agree to produce it um, at a police station. So we start with the assumption that you're free and then that you're limited because of the necessity to to enhance the freedom of others. The Continentals take a very different view. And we need to examine what the Human Rights Act actually does in the UK, because it doesn't do, in my view, what people think it does. What it does is it um, gives the courts the opportunity to frustrate the will of Parliament, because if Parliament um, passes laws that, for example, prohibit the construction of houses on land without planning permission, or, for example, uh, removes um, the, the right to seek asylum for classes of persons, you can have a situation where um, the courts take that black letter law and then say, well, because of the, this appeal here on the right to a family life, um, this person um, can't actually be deported. If we remove the right of, for example, Albanians to uh, to reside in the UK, um, but a pretext was found to remain in the UK for long enough for a court hearing to take place, if the person then um, establishes a relationship or um, begins a family, starts to get someone pregnant, um, the the right to have family life um, will be held, or I, in my view would probably be held, to be uh, to trump. the the prohibition on Albanians um, seeking uh, refugee status asylum in the UK despite the fact that Albania is an aspirant country for the EU I believe and uh, and a stable and relatively safe country that people holiday to. So if if we have any blanket prohibition um, and uh, and we retain the Human Rights Act as sure as eggs are little round tasty things uh, the lawyers will find ways to invite the courts to hang judgments on these hooks. And it will take so long for the appeal process all the way through to Strasbourg to take place um, that the person will be long established in the UK um, before that's decided. And the Strasbourg court, of course, will probably decide the case um, in, a, in a way that favours them. We've got us in a position, I mean, that famously, the British opposed um, changes to EU law or implementation of new laws precisely because we and the Danes um, and the Germans knew that we would enforce them. Other countries argued less because they had no intention of enforcing them. Um, And there's been recent publicity um, for the um, supposed fact that large numbers of countries that the the Strasbourg court is frustrated because it doesn't feel as if its judgments are having effect in lots of countries where um, people are, are, are winning and losing cases because countries are just ignoring the Strasbourg court. Um, how true that is, I haven't investigated. But we know that the UK is very much a, a rational, legal, bureaucratic state. So if, if something is decided in court, it'll be done in the UK, um, we'll obey. And, uh, and as a consequence, it might be that we are suffering the, the Strasbourg court in a way that others aren't. But nevertheless, the, the European Convention on Human Rights, the Human Rights Act, is said to be the kind of thing that no reasonable person could be against but that's only because of the sound of it i mean people hear the, the the rights aspect of that and think well who could be against rights who could possibly oppose rights and the trouble is if you if you spend two seconds thought uh, on it or three minutes thought as a houseman the poet said as houseman said three minutes thought would serve to establish this but thinking is onerous and three minutes is a long time the problem with the Human Rights Act is that thinking is onerous in three minutes is a long time and people are not prepared to spend three minutes thinking it through. The fundamental right of the British people is the right to be governed by their own laws. And the trouble is if you have a convention of human rights or also a law in this case, the Human Rights Act, and you set it up such that judges are entitled to find uh, cases on the basis of these principles rather than black letter law, If you set that up, what you have is not the rule of law. It's the rule of judges and uh, Kettles claim that the Tory party is against the rule of law and that Margaret Thatcher, for example, was strongly in favour of the rule of law. That really aligns over a distinction that's important. It's not that the Tory party is against the rule of law. it's They're against the rule of judges or certainly the centre right of the Tory party or the right of the Tory party is against the rule of judges. And what the Human Rights Act does is it sets up the rule of judges. The rule of law is parliament passes laws and the courts are mechanisms. In a court, there's two things you have to do. You have to establish the facts and you have to establish the law. And uh, so you have a proof hearing to establish the facts and you have a debate to establish the law. Sometimes you don't need a proof hearing because the facts are not in dispute. And the trouble is that um, the uh, uh the rule of law implies that the judge um, might dislike one party. As I always say, the judge might well dislike Mr. Rackman, the uh, the, the landlord. So if you're Rackman and you're going to court to get your uh, property um, taken from a tenant, the judge probably despises Rackman. Rackman perhaps been convicted in the criminal courts before, but the facts are the, what the facts are. It might suit the court or the judge to find that Rackman threatened the tenant. But if in all honesty, hand on heart, the judge finds the evidence that that happened to be um, uncompelling, um, then they should find that Rackman did not threaten the tenant. But of course, if you start with your desire to find the favour of the tenant, then you'll claim that the tenant's testimony that they were threatened was convincing. And you'll find that as a fact, um, and you'll write it down in the stated case, and it'll become a fact and it won't be revisited by an Appeal Court because Appeal Courts won't revisit these findings in fact. So bad judges were always able to find facts um, in a a way that suited them. And if that didn't work, they would then do something tendentious with the law. As the master of the Rose Lord Denning said, I can usually find a case that allows me to do what I want to do. Now, what the Human Rights Act does is it puts that on steroids. It means that you've got these principles, these broad principles that allow you to say, well, I think this is consistent with uh, the right to a family life. I think that trumps this particular piece of law. I find this piece of law to be uh, ambiguous and open to interpretation in a way that no reasonable person could actually honestly say they did find it. So we end up in a situation where Parliament is no longer sovereign, and that's a major issue because um, parliamentary sovereignty is at the heart of our system and uh, we can't get by without it, Um, and it's anti-democratic to uh, not have a sovereign parliament for the simple reason that the judges aren't elected i'm not uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to elect them but um the judges aren't elected and if they set themselves up as a rival center to the parliament that's intolerable in the united states they um following the famous judgment marbury v madison right back in the um late 18th century i think maybe maybe early 19th i'd have to check i think late 18th But the the great case of Marbury v. Madison um, established the Supreme Court as a rival to the other two branches of government. And the outrage that was um, ventilated following the Roe v. Wade judgment recently, when the court said there is no business of the federal government to require the states to provide abortion services. It's it's a matter for the states. That was nothing more than the the, the law. I mean, the the 10th amendment is clear. Power's not given to the federal government are reserved for the people of the states. So what the Supreme Court did in that recent road judgment was nothing more than obey the Constitution uh, and limit itself appropriately, um, given that it was only a court and not a legislator, um, or legislature rather. Um, But people were outraged because they've got themselves into a a frame of mind where they think that uh, however dysfunctional the Congress is, the court will come along and act as a second uh, benign despotism, a a grand bar that will remedy all the weaknesses of the other parts of the system. And uh, that kind of error, that, that belief in the part of so many Americans that you can have a, a free state which isn't democratic because there's a benign despot, that has unfortunately in the last 20 years been replicated in the UK and we've got us in a position where uh, we think the courts are alternatives to the democratic process. And as John Stuart Mill said 150 years ago, that infantilises the people, it turns us into children because we have to take responsibility for our politics and we have to take an interest in our laws. And uh, as, as Mill says, in a, in a despotism, there is but one patriot, the despot himself. Even a, even a benign despotism creates a feeble people. And uh, when we won't take an interest in our politics and then assume that the courts will come along and save us from the consequences of our torpor, um, that is not a, an appropriate um, behaviour for citizens. It makes us weak, uh, it makes us lazy, uh, and it makes us petulant, and we've seen quite a lot of all of that in the last uh, 20 years. Now, as I said earlier, Sunak um, has beneath him uh, in his cabinet two ministers who are both trying to address the problem that the, the Tory right sees in the in the Human Rights Act, and they're doing it in very different ways. Raab is continuing um, what Gordon Brown floated in 2010, which is this British Bill of Rights. <laughs> And people have criticized Braverman for, uh, for not being particularly intelligent, but she's smart enough to realize that nothing additive will help. The idea that you can actually fix the the fundamental issue. I, I always say that devolution was such a terrible mistake, because the Scots weren't happy with welfare and industrial policy. So the Blair government devolved education, law and order and health. Now, that is to completely miss the point. If if the Scots aren't happy about welfare policy and industrial policy, devolving education, law and order and health is to completely, utterly uh, grab the wrong end of the stick. In the same way, um, if people aren't happy about the European Convention of Human Rights acting as a pretext for judges to make decisions, then a separate additive British Bill of Rights, giving supposedly new rights is um, an irrelevance at best and a cynical muddying of the water at worst. It's hard to know what Rab actually um, thinks he's trying to do. And of course, the reason the reason why he's in difficulty right now and the reason why the bill has been suspended and it hasn't had its second reading um, is precisely because it wasn't a possible solution at the start. Someone said about the space shuttle that because the fundamental design was bad, there was no way of fixing it. If you make that kind of mistake right at the outset, you have to scrap it because you you can't possibly uh, reverse out of that mistake. It's the, the, fu- the error is too fundamental. Um, however critical you can be of Braverman and her abilities, at least she's got the sense to see that if the problem is a statement of principles on which judgments can be hung by judges, if that's the fundamental problem, no rival statement of additional rights can possibly begin to address that problem. And that's why Rabs in difficulty right now, because and he he was he was a a law graduate who worked for a very um, classy English law firm, but only for a very short period of time. And uh, I think as as a as a lawyer, he's made a serious mistake. Um, as a lawyer, it seems he's not a very good law maker, um, because uh, it cannot possibly be the case that a British Bill of Rights given further rights um, can fix the problem of. Um, rights as abstract statements of entitlement that the courts can use to hang judgments on. uh, uh, It it seems as if, we haven't seen his Bill of Rights yet, but it seems as if what he's actually going to do is make things worse because uh, a statement of such rights can only give the courts further hooks in which to hang judgments, further frustrating parliamentary sovereignty. If you've been following the, the Tory party's twisting and turning over the last few months, you can see the playing out of the uh, indecision. Essentially, strategically, the party's got two choices. It can either run to the right and lose, but retain um, internal unity, or, or retain the the, the the single party. If they can keep the the the, the, the centre right of the, cent- the the centre and left of the Tory party have got nowhere to go. The the broad swathe of the Tory party has got nowhere to go. They won't go to Reform UK. They can't. So the worry in the Tory party regarding a split is that the right goes to reform UK and it's happening a wee bit already. So if you want to keep the party together uh, and you're happy to lose, then what you do is you run to the right with Braverman and others and you accept that you're going to get 180 seats in in the next election, maybe even less, but say 180, 200, something like that. So you accept that you're going to lose. And even if Starmer brings in proportional representation, Because you're a party of the right, um, you won't actually see a split. You won't see the Tory party divide with the right going to reform UK. That's one strategy. The other strategy is that you try to win, and that would be ambitious, or at the very least, lose narrowly um, by running to the the centre. And then you keep the party together because of ambition at the heights, at at the top of it. Because if a party thinks it can win again five years later, the top of the party won't split, the, the you won't get the uh, the MPs moving to reform or any other party because they'll assume that the Tory party might win um in the next election 28, um and therefore cabinet posts and, and, and honours of all sorts will be available again. So the um the the, the the two views that you take um are um very different um because you you either try to um avoid a split. If that's your priority, then you run to the right and accept you're going to lose. If you run to the centre and lose, and Starmer introduces PR, then the party will split it. Because the, the, the run up to the election um, and, and the centrist, centrist position of the party leading up into the 2024 election, that will so anger and alienate the swell of breverman um, right that come the Starmer government, and, uh, and and if, if he dares to introduce PR, um, then the Tory party will split and uh, and the right will go to the uh, Reform UK or, or another party, probably Reform UK. So if you watch what's happening over the last few months, the decision, they, they floated, they, 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 they flew a, a, a kite or, or put a flag up the flagpole to see whether anybody would accept the idea that benefits and pensions would not be operated uh, in line with inflation, or in the case of pensions, the triple lock. And I think earnings, the big bounce in no, it was infl- inflation was higher than earnings. So they, they they floated the idea that they wouldn't increase um, pensions and, and welfare benefits in line. And then they said they would. And uh, the, uh, the, the sums of money are now becoming very large. British state spending is a trillion. And we're now under the heaviest tax burden we've been under, I think, since the war. Very, very heavy tax burden and the freezing of personal allowances of various sorts nothing being done for the um, self-employed dividend receivers. Dividends actually were characterised by, I think, a Tory spokesperson as unearned income, which was very provocative for uh, lots of small businessmen. So the Tory party under Sunak is broadly, it seems, running to the, the centre. I don't know what Sunak believes in. Uh, as Treasury Minister, as you know, Chancellor Exchequer, he seemed curiously unwilling to oppose the kind of spending that Johnson was in favour of, uh, not only in COVID but in other things as well, and uh, consequently we've run up a huge amount of debt, and uh, the the COVID strategy was seen to be, in my view, uh, mistaken very early on. But Sunak did nothing to oppose it, which he would have thought would have been the uh, the lot of a cabinet minister in charge of finance. And of course, Lord Agnew resigned because he couldn't stomach Sunak and others walking away from nine thousand million quid um there was no attempt made to pursue this fraud and agnew quit because of it so the, the tory party um sunak was said to be of the right but he's, he's not been of the right either as chancellor or as prime minister and uh, this it seems as if after some indecision and muddle they're going to try and run as a centrist party into the election regardless of the consequences for the hardcore tory vote regardless of the anger on the part of businessmen and, and wealthier individuals because of the tax burden um, and the extraordinary levels of debt and debt interest. and uh, But at the same time, he hasn't quite managed to convince himself that ditching Braverman and deliberately provoking the right is, is a good idea either. So it's essentially a, a centrist um, government into the next election, but with a tolerance for Braverman. Uh, she's, been, she's been granted the same kind of let, when I think about it, that Corbyn was um, under Blair, there was lots of talk about trying to get rid of, uh, or indeed the Benites uh, in the 1970s, Tony Benn and his followers in the 1970s in Labour. Um, Braverman's been granted that kind of indulgence. Um, Tony Blair said we can afford to tolerate a Jeremy Corbyn, and uh, it seems as if um, the uh, the soon government is going to tolerate Braverman and the right into the election, um, but they're running in the centre and it's a dangerous strategy if Starmer brings in proportional representation because um, running to the centre and losing will mean that that after that defeat um, if there is is PR, the the right, knowing that they can win seats under PR um, will split from the Tory party and it could be the the end of the most successful electoral machine in British politics. Now just to conclude um, as a Scot, uh, maybe I shouldn't speak about English exceptionalism. But then again, maybe as a Scot, I'm perfectly equipped uh, and positioned to speak about English exceptionalism. This trope that Brexit was driven by uh, English exceptionalism, and uh, this little, little Englander notion that uh, the uh, the rules don't apply, and that we're quite unlike other similar nations, or, or ostensibly similar nations, it worries me the extent to which this um rewriting of history and this kind of libel can be can be taken as fact if we actually think about what's happened over the last um 6 or 7 years um english exceptionalism has nothing to do with with brexit brexit was not caused by english exceptionalism it was caused by things that were far far more prosaic um, and were uh, with the result of the Brown government, uh, the, the Brown chancellorship rather, uh, and to a lesser extent the Brown government. Ian Duncan Smith desperately tried to reverse out of Brown's inward work welfare system, but to repeat George Osborne's attack on, on Smith, um, he, he might not have been bright enough to be a cabinet minister, said George Brown. said uh, uh, George Osborne. I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly the attempt to remedy inward work welfare under Duncan Smith largely seemed to involve bundling it up, again, without actually thinking or being clear about what the fundamental problem was. The fundamental problem of in-work welfare was the problem of uh, incentives. When it was introduced back in, I think, 2004, uh, number 10 staff, as I've said before, said that these hourly limits for work will serve not as um, floors but as ceilings. So, no single parent will work more than 16 hours, no couple will work more than 24. Um, No single person over 30, uh, I think it's 30, 25 years old, I think, will work more than 30 hours. Uh, no rational person would actually um work more than these hours. And because the welfare state kicks in, if you work these minimum number of hours, any rational person would look for a very congenial job, an enjoyable job, um, for exactly that number of hours. So if you very much enjoy being in a hairdresser's and uh, talking to people, um, then 16 hours of that is much, much better than working as a network admin person and under tremendous stress, because the difference in wages at the end of the day will be very modest if you've got a number of kids. So what the system did was it incentivized folk to get a job that was congenial for a minimum number of hours at low wages. It didn't matter what the wages were, and because everyone's second language is English. The, uh, the immigration to the UK was very, very great. Now, of course, people like Jonathan Portis, who used to be a civil servant, is now an academic at uh, Imperial, maybe London School of Economics, somewhere like that. Jonathan Portis, a huge defender of the EU, a huge defender of British membership, um, will tell you that EU migrants pay more in taxes than they receive in benefits, which is true. Um, but the British state costs a trillion pounds, not just benefits, which is uh, 30% of that. And if you use the same methodology and look at the same cohort, because the British people um, on average are older than EU migrants, because obviously pensioners tend not to move to other countries. If you compare like with like, if you actually compare um, EU migrants with a similar cohort of British people, then you get something like a figure of, I think it's 270 billion surplus um, paid in taxes by the British people. Now, of course, that's an absolute fiction. The fact of the matter is that the median taxpayer is not paying anything like enough over the course of their life to pay for the services and transfer payments that they receive. At the moment, the British state is now costing uh, just under £15,000 per person per year, um, and uh, most folk will never pay anything like enough tax. over the course of their life to cover the cost of the services. So people voted for Brexit um, because they knew, uh, and they could see it all around them in their communities, they knew that it wasn't going to be possible to provide £7,000 a year secondary school places and £4,500 a year primary school places and maybe £20,000 a year in, in work welfare. It wasn't going to be possible to provide that for everybody in Europe who would like it. You know, we we simply couldn't take Europe's median skilled workers, uh, all of them. Uh, And that's certainly why I voted in in favour of Brexit, because I could see the long term consequences of the open door offer we were making. It simply wasn't going to be possible. A child could understand why over time uh, we would end up in a situation where less was being spent per head uh, of the population. We might be able to spend the same amount in total, but much less would be spent per head. And that would cause social, social tensions. It's happening already, arguably. We're spending a trillion, but there's massive problems. People can't afford to heat their homes. Uh, there's massive food inflation. There's a huge amount of social strife. Uh, despite the fact that we've got the heaviest burden in taxation since the war. And we're spending uh, a trillion pounds in state services, fifty thousand pounds per head. So what people like me said would happen is arguably happening right now. And to claim that somehow Brexit was fuelled by this Little Englander uh, approach to the world. It simply wasn't. Um, it was. It was a concern with whether our laws would apply in in our country. Um, it was. It was a concern that the European Court of Justice was reinventing itself as a second Strasbourg court, and was telling us what we could and couldn't do um, with Moroccans who smuggled Sims into terrorist suspects in prisons. Again, another reason why I voted to leave, because we need to be able to deport uh, a Moroccan. Who um, smuggles a sim into a terrorist suspect in a prison? They are persona non grata. They must go. Uh, and if uh, if a court will decide on the basis of some um, convention, not even convention right actually, but but a, a Luxembourg um, charter of fundamental rights right, uh, we 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 were in the situation where we had an opt out supposedly on the charter of fundamental rights, and then that opt out was ignored, and we were told that in actual fact. Um, the Luxembourg Court's Charter of Fundamental Rights would apply to people in the UK um, and therefore we couldn't deport um, a, a Moroccan um, who was smuggling Sims into a prison. So the, the, this idea that, um, the, uh, that that Brexit was fuelled by the Little Englander um, mentality, quite the opposite or, or, or British exceptionalism. Nobody in Britain um, who was concerned about the level of immigration Thought that Britain was exceptional and an imperial power still, and was therefore motivated. I mean, the 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 libel, the attack on on people who voted for Brexit, um, that they are uh, racist, xenophobic, um, and uh, an anti-immigrant for, for no very good reason. It's just disgusting and and untenable. Um, all of the surveys, all of the evidence shows that the British are a very open, very tolerant, very liberal, very pluralistic people and that's why people come here. It really is unfair to describe the British people um, as being somehow um, either xenophobic or possessed of the idea that they're exceptional among nations. Brexit was driven, quite simply, um, by folks seeing all around them the consequences of open-door migration in a country with a massive welfare state and public provision. These two things, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And the remainers forget exactly why we ended up with the Brexit we ended up with, and uh, we didn't. We voted to leave the European Union, but what that would amount to, of course, was decided in the Parliament in the three or four years afterwards, and uh, the uh, the attempt by people like do remember do we remember Joe Swinson and Nick Clegg. Remember Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister and uh, leader of the Liberal Democrats. Remember his embarrassment when Andrew Neil suggested that if you were in favour of remaining in this internal market, and in favour of remaining in the customs union, you'd be as well deleting the idea Democrat from your title because there's nothing democratic about it. Do you remember Jo Swinson saying let's just actually vote to remain in the European Union and to hell with the referendum result? She lost her seat in Eastern Bartonshire. Because of that, ordinary people could see that there really was a crossing of a line there. So the, the reason why we had the Brexit we had was not because of a little ignorant mentality or British exceptionism. The reason why we had the Brexit we had was precisely because Remainers in the Parliament voted against every single possible compromise in every single decent sane arrangement. I personally thought it was a good idea to remain in the customs union because the additional benefit of uh, trade deals around the world uh, was very modest compared to what we really needed which was withdrawal from the internal market and to get away from the so-called four freedoms, including the freedom of movement of persons. That was what we needed, that was the motivation for Brexit. And of course we ended up in a situation where we had a so-called hard Brexit, um, and uh, we left both the customs union and the internal market, precisely because parties like the Scottish National Party uh, and others uh, wouldn't vote for any other deal. They They would not actively support a leaving. We'd voted to leave and they wouldn't support a leaving. They were intent on trying to remain. And because they wouldn't support a leaving, we ended up in a situation in 2019 where Johnson was elected with a huge majority, 80, I think it was, and was able to leave in the terms that he dictated. This was all done not by leavers. This, this, this manner of leaving was not a product of leaver intention. This was not, you know, uh, a, this was not a, a Brexit that could have been envisaged in 2016 when people voted to leave. This was a Brexit that was engineered between 2016 and 2019, and it was engineered by remainers. Peace.